to Millennial Ag, where agriculture is always on tap and no topic is off limits. Thanks for joining us today, your co-hosts, Valine Likely and Catherine Lotspeech. Listeners, we are at episode 51, and this week um, has seemed like with, you know, school starting and COVID still kind of on the back burner, um, that sort of things, there's still a lot in politics going on right now, and you've heard a lot um, about us talking about activism and threats facing production agriculture. And so we decided to, you know, dive into a little bit about the the political side and get a senator on um, to help discuss some of the policy backing, kind of what's going on in Colorado. We've talked a lot about Governor Polis and some of the threats that Colorado is facing on that front. So before we dive into our topic, though, Catherine, do you want to introduce us to our um, guest this week? I would be happy to. Uh, We are thrilled to be joined this week by our first official politician on the show. Um, Please continue to listen to our show. (laughs) I think mom was on once. Oh, that's true, too. Okay, okay. All right. So we're in good company. (laughs) Catherine, you've always taught me that I'm a spokesperson, not a politician. (laughs) Well, I might have forgotten that because it's been a while since I was in your office, Senator. (laughs) We are absolutely delighted to welcome to the show uh, Colorado State Senator Jerry Sonnenberg. Um, Senator Sonnenberg is a good friend of mine. He gave me one of my first jobs in Colorado and um, is also a a, um, close mentor in agriculture. He is the president of the board of directors for the Colorado Ag Leadership Program, which has had a huge influence in my life. I've talked about it a little bit here before. Um, And just all around um, voice of agriculture for for rural Colorado. So Senator, welcome to the show and tell us a little bit more about yourself. You know, it's a pleasure to be a part of your podcast. And let me just say how proud I am of uh, both of you for taking this uh, bull by the horns and, and going with it. Uh, it it's grown. Uh, uh, the truth is, and I told Catherine this, uh, the last episode you did, I thought was one of the top 10 that uh, you've had so far. So uh, it's fun to watch you blossom and it's an honor to be a part of it. Uh, yes, I'm a farmer and rancher up by Sterling. Uh, I live in the same house that both my father and I were raised in. Uh, we were, uh, we've been in this house since 1937. Uh, I tell everybody that uh, I would never move out, so finally my parents did. <laughs> uh, I continue to farm a diversified uh, agriculture operation where we grow wheat, corn, sunflowers, millet, uh, Uh, cattle, and then we have a small feedlot as well. Uh, We run about 300 mama cows. uh, And then uh, I I am fortunate. I have uh, two sons that have stayed on the farm with their families, uh, help run the operation. And so it indeed is a family operation with uh, my sons and my wife. uh, And and I'm blessed to still be in agriculture and have uh, those opportunities. Well, I want to, before we dive in, I first want to say thank you. Thank you for serving and thank you for being a voice of reason in our state house. Um, Don't get too carried away. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's some that would argue about that voice of reason. (laughs) I appreciate the compliment. Thank you. Well, and I know how brutal it can be, um, especially now with with COVID and everything else going on. So thank you. Um, But we recently came across a Drover's article um, that you were featured in talking about the appointment of Ellen Kessler 
um, to the state vet board. And it's my understanding that Ellen is, is a vegan or animal activist of some kind. And there's some concerns about her being appointed to the vet board. Can you maybe elaborate on, on that a little bit and explain to our listeners that aren't familiar what the vet board in Colorado is, what that, what that entails? Well, absolutely. And that's a great question because the uh, veterinary board is a board that oversees uh, veterinarians, uh, both small animal and large animal veterinarians in the state of Colorado. Uh, they make sure those veterinarians hold truth to their hold true to their oath, uh, make sure that they uh, uh, do what is best for the animals uh, and, and follow through with their education. Uh, they're just an oversight board uh, uh, that helps govern them. Uh, with uh, Ms. Kessler's appointment uh, raised some eyebrows, obviously, in the ag industry. Ms. Kessler is known as a vegan activist. And from my perspective, I don't care what they eat, uh, but I'm not sure what a vegan activist brings to the board of veterinarians uh, when it comes to their oversight. Uh, you know, those of us in agriculture do what we can uh, to take care of animals. Uh, uh, we probably take care of animals better than, than many people take care of their kids. Uh, that's our livelihood. Uh, we love the animals. Uh, we're the ultimate uh, animal activist and protect animals. Uh, matter of fact, uh, many have heard me tell the story that uh, we have had uh, baby calves uh, in our kitchen, in our bathtub. Uh, when it's cold out, we bring animals. And Valine, I know you have probably been in the same boat. When cold out they're in a blizzard uh, you bring those animals into your house uh, uh, they're just like your children you take care of them you do what you can uh, what an animal activist vegan activist has or an anti-animal agriculture activist has to give to the board is obviously concerning and i have raised awareness uh, about that appointment so how does somebody get on the vet board is it does the governor appoint it? Do you run for that office? Do you do other vets vote for it? How does somebody get on the vet board? The vet board, as well as a number of other boards and commissions across the state, are all appointed by the governor. Uh, the governor makes his appointments. Uh, oftentimes, they're uh, appointments that people have applied to. Uh, oftentimes they're political appointments. And what we have seen with this administration seems to be more political uh, in nature. Uh, we can talk about the state fair appointment. We can talk about parks and wildlife appointments uh, and how agriculture is getting left out of the mix. Uh, and even rural Colorado is getting left out of the mix on those appointments. Now, the other part of that is they have to be approved or confirmed by the Senate. Uh, and when the Senate doesn't confirm them, they are no longer allowed to, uh, to serve. Uh, we had one of those appointments this year uh, with regard to the state fair, which we actually had the votes to stop that appointment. And uh, as it turned out, the governor had a little pressure on leadership in the Senate. That vote never did come to the Senate floor. And then through some political wrangling, uh, that appointment was removed, 
and then placed back in again as a new appointment to circumvent the process. So uh, it, it is a uh, interesting process. Uh, the Constitution says they have to be confirmed. I anticipate we will have a hearing on Ms. Kessler uh, during the next legislative session uh, and in hopes that uh, we will be able to wrangle bipartisan support to stop that nomination and that appointment uh, if they actually understand what a VET uh, oversight committee does. So the next legislative session for Colorado doesn't start until January. Um, is Ms. Kessler serving in a capacity on the board until then? Without uh, She indeed is. Uh, she is able to serve uh, at the pleasure of the governor until uh, that next legislative session, until that confirmation hearing comes up in front of the full Senate. So this gives rise to um, what we see is becoming a larger issue in Colorado agriculture and politics. Um, the, the process you just described sounds like DC tactics to me, <laughs> you know, not something that we would expect, um, you know, certainly not coming out of our rural backgrounds to have to deal with, but it sounds like you certainly are at least, and thank you for doing that. But, um, you know, it seems like Governor Polis has sort of gotten crosswise with agriculture in Colorado several times uh, since he's been elected. Uh, Valine and I did an episode last fall about how um, he was championing the Impossible Burger, which is fine, but, you know, it seemed like he took it to a different level of completely leaving out animal protein, which bothers us, obviously. Um, now this appointment to the vet board, it sounds like there's other appointments that have been problematic. What, do you have theories on, you know, underlying motives behind these types of stunts from a governor who, it feels like he's taking pot shots at us and it feels like we're in the crosshairs for no real reason? I mean, usually agriculturists, you know, we like to keep our heads down and go about our business. Well, and he even made one of the um, COVID updates I was listening to. Um, he, he made an underlying cut on going meatless on Monday on something that didn't even relate <laughs> to agriculture, shouldn't even been food brought up. We, we are feeling like we're a little under attack and sometimes the victim, which we don't like to be victimized, but we want to hear your thoughts and your theories kind of behind some of this stunts that seem to be pulled over the last year or two. Yeah, indeed, it is interesting. Uh, you talk about one of his COVID updates where uh, Meatless Monday, he also did a uh, COVID update in where he said uh, we shouldn't be using antibiotics in animals as well as part of uh, his COVID update, which uh, he made some absolutely outright I won't say lies because I'm not sure he knows better, uh, but he made incorrect statements about the use of antibiotics in both humans and animals. And, and that's frustrating when you have someone with that type of platform or bully pulpit able to spread misinformation about agriculture. Um, where's that coming from? I would like to believe it's just a lack of understanding of agriculture and our rural way of life. Uh, but we know that uh, his husband, uh, significant other, I'm not sure the correct term um, here is um, first gentleman. That's the correct term. Sorry, I had mind uh, uh, blank for a minute, is also uh, an, an animal activist. And so um, I'm sure those discussions over dinner 
uh, and and uh, uh, those type of things uh, uh, probably have something to do with the way he conducts business when it comes to animal agriculture. Uh, I think part of the issue here is I honestly believe that he doesn't have anybody in the agriculture industry able to help him bend his ear and actually say, uh, uh, this is actually what happens on a farm or a ranch, or this is what happens if you say something like this. Uh, you remember the last governor had Commissioner Don Brown. Uh, Don Brown was actually in agriculture. And when that governor had a conversation with Don Brown, he could be educated and actually learned uh, what a statement might mean, uh, what actually happens in agriculture. And uh, uh, this governor doesn't have that. Uh, we have a commissioner of agriculture uh, that is trying to do her best to run that uh, uh, department, uh, but has very little ag background. And, and, and so that becomes a challenge for an administration on how to make that work and how to not alienate people when you don't have somebody there to help you advise you with that. So where is, is agriculture itself at fault for not showing up and making sure we have a seat at that table for him? Or have we just been like tuned out, not listened to and left in the dust? Well, I can tell you that agriculture has been engaged with him and, and tried to give him the benefit of the doubt and constantly reaches out to him. Uh, I constantly reach out to him, but uh, as you have seen in some of my writings uh, and some of the news stories, uh, he doesn't respond to me. Uh, not even uh, a thank you for the note, Jerry, maybe we should talk about this or uh, it, it, it's the standard, thank you for reaching out to the governor's office. Uh, we will take your comments into consideration type. Uh, so uh, I hate to say it, but there's a level of arrogance here that we have not seen in the executive branch before that I am not used to dealing with in the executive branch where he just doesn't seem to care. So agriculture groups have become frustrated. They have reached out but they have become frustrated uh, when you can talk to him, but yet he still ignores them. So uh, with that said, uh, is it our responsibility as agriculture producers and ag groups to find a better way to reach him? Absolutely. So we do have something to blame here. So this situation as we're sitting in it is incredibly frustrating. Um, as, as agricultural producers, as supporters of agriculture um, in, a, in an ag supporting industry or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, careers that Valley and I are in, you know, it's, it's really frustrating to be in the middle of it, in the thick of it, and just watch it unfolding. But if we look out a little further in the future and, and, and spread our perspective out throughout the country, um, we all know that less than 2% of American, of the American population is involved in ag. And obviously that translates um, to a very, very small representation on state and cap or state, um, state and the federal Capitol Hills. And so how going forward does agriculture deal with this? Because I don't think that this problem is unique to Colorado and it sure as sure as heck isn't going away, even if, if we have a new governor. Yeah, you're exactly right. And you know, just to put it in perspective, there are four senators that represents 73% of the 
of the landmass in Colorado. I represent 20% of the landmass myself. So one fifth of the entire state is represented by my, or is part of my Senate district out of 35 senators. That you take that and break it down into then how many people are actually ag producers and that even gets less. And every state is battling this. Every state is fighting this. Uh, the problem then becomes, how do we have our voice heard? And uh, oftentimes we'll reach out to organizations, those organizations we talked about uh, earlier, uh, wheat growers, corn growers, cattlemen, livestock association, uh, dairy, uh, dairy uh, oh, Brock would shoot me, uh, dairy farmers <laughs> of America. No, uh, actually, uh, Brock, let alone uh, uh, Catherine, will <laughs> over this. So, but, but we look at those organizations, but what we have ended up finding out during this entire process our opposition, those people that constantly attack ag, attack with such uh, extreme ass, and it's like they sue and settle. And so we come as agriculture and we give. We give a little here. We give a little there. Uh, we give a little more over here just to appease them and pretty soon we as agriculture are dying with uh, death by a thousand cuts. That is concerning to me. And, and, and I know you talked about that in your podcast last week about how some of these ag organizations uh, tend to uh, maybe give in and not hold the line when, we, when those of us in the industry think that they should be. Uh, that has become a problem as well. But the sue and settle model has become our opponent's number one advocacy uh, strategy. Uh, we've seen it with the EPA. We've seen it with wildlife. Uh, we, will we will be sued and then settle and they win and we lose at every aspect. So I have so many questions. Um, <laughs> Because we, we talk about a lot, like having conversation and trying to gain, you know, ground or trying to find neutral ground between somebody that has opposing views that's willing to sit down and have those conversations. But when they quit wanting to sit down, have those conversations and compromise on their end as well, that's where we've got to learn to draw the line, I think. But how do we figure out where to define that line? Because we talked to kind of about it in the egg bill too, like for the dairy and beef side specifically, you know, there, the egg industry doesn't personally affect my family's ranching operation, but that's going to be the next thing that comes down the pipeline after the dairy industry is going to be beef to some extent. They just trickle their way down and then keep cycling through all those industries. So where do we stop Draw, put our foot in the sand and say, no, we're not willing to compromise. Well, and that's a great question uh, because what may be a line for one producer is a different line for another producer. And what may be a line that we can live with with one livestock organization is a different line 
in another livestock organization. So how do we how do we get everybody on the same page? And that is actually in Colorado the forty billion dollar question because that's our contribution, agriculture's contribution to the economy in Colorado, and we can't get Colorado on the same page. How in the devil will we ever get America on the same page? Uh, you raise a valid question, and I honestly don't have an answer to that. Uh, we. I, I can tell you we have to continue to have the conversations. You still have to reach out and find new ways to educate our governor, to have those conversations with our urban cousins, to, uh, 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 you know, I know both of you, if you could reach across and slap me, you would right now, because we obviously Every time someone says we have to reach out to our urban cousins and continue to have those conversations, but those conversations haven't got us anywhere, or have they? What would have happened if we wouldn't have had those conversations? Where would we be at that point? I can tell you the only way to move this needle is quite honestly to continue to build those coalitions, to continue to have those conversations. And if that means building a coalition with our enemy, sometimes you're going to have to do that. Um, do we draw a line in the sand in the way we produce our products? Absolutely. I will stand every single day the practices behind the practices we use on our farm and ranch that we do things better now than I did when I started farming back in the 70s and when my dad started in the 50s. I don't know if you know this, but in the first decade of this current century, century 2000 and 2010, it was actually hotter and drier in northeastern Colorado than it was in the dirty 30s. But because of our agricultural practices, because of our grazing practices, where we implement rotational grazing, where we use chemofollow, where we do things to protect the land and soil, you didn't see any of the Dust Bowl uh, uh, situations that you saw back in the 30s. And it should have been worse because the weather was worse. That's because of the way we do things in agriculture. People don't understand that. And we have to continue to have that conversation and, and, and explain. This is why we do things the way we do. The problem we have the activists that work against us have a much larger stage to perform from. And they're a little more emotional and dramatic when they take that stage. And in agriculture, I feel like when we take the stage, we've been very polished, we've been very routine, and we don't want to show that side. We don't even want to put ourselves out there because we don't want to be yelled at for what we're doing. But if we sit back on our farms and ranches and be like, I'm working hard, I'm keeping my head down, I'm being innovative, I'm being progressive, I'm taking these new stands. But if that message isn't reaching consumers, that loud voice on stage is. Governor Polis is making that move. The media is making that move. All these celebrities that are going meatless on Monday and promoting it, they're making those headlines. But agriculture doesn't seem to be at that table. Well, and 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 you're right. Uh, 
So how do we get that out? Uh, and the truth is, uh, you and, and several of your guests that you have had on the show uh, are, are starting to do that. Uh, uh, you talked with a lady, and I should have been better prepared. I remember her name from listening to your podcast, The Lady from Texas. Uh, uh, absolutely entertaining show. Was it Cowgirl? Uh, you know who I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> it was fantastic. And she can, she can share the message just like you're sharing the message better than this old white guy. And, and that's part of the issue that we have had in agriculture uh, is, is you got people like me that uh, uh, are the spokespeople that people don't want to listen to. They want to hear new, fresh ideas, new, fresh voices with new, fresh ideas they don't know that they're fresh ideas. They may be the same ideas, but they're fresh ideas to them because they've never listened. The people that need to deliver the message are those people like what you're doing and others like you, the people are willing to listen to. And that who is who has to deliver the message and build that relationship with uh, our so-called urban cousins or those people that don't understand agriculture. There's a lot of food for thought in, in that commentary just there, um, especially the part about relationships, because we can say we want to educate and, and have conversations all day long. But if someone came up to me and said, hey, I, you need to be educated on the banking industry because you don't understand how your debit card works. I mean, that would that would just annoy me, you know, and if, if you know, if, if if someone walked up to me in the grocery store and tried to tell me how things were, that would annoy me even more. And so I think, you know, more of a focus on building relationships, as uncomfortable as it might be, as far outside of our comfort zones as it might be, um, as open to vulnerability as it will make us, is really a move that agriculture has to begin to make beyond tell your story. <laughs> and, and the other part of that too is, um, you know, it's interesting that you bring up old white guys because that's actually in our in our outline right here. <laughs> um, you know, we we talk a lot about diversity inclusion on our podcast, um, specifically within the ag industry, and typically in agriculture, just because of the way it is, um, you know, it's not right, wrong, or indifferent. But typically, right now, older white men sit on um, boards of directors in positions of leadership. Um, you know, those types of things and, you know, bringing in people from different backgrounds, more women, people of color, any kind of diversity, um, you know, has big benefits. But something that Valley and I have been wondering for the last few weeks, um, as we've watched some of these things go down in agriculture and a lot of, you know, regulation and legislation being handed down without, without agriculture having its, its voice at the table, we wonder, you know, can that go too far? Has it gone too far in Colorado? What if we had somebody like Alexandra Ocasio-Ortez, um, you know, on the Ag Committee making these decisions or the Colorado House Ag Committee that doesn't have a single agricultural producer on it? Can that cause more harm than good sometimes? Well, yes, absolutely. When you have somebody uh, sitting on committees that regulate uh, or oversee or are designed to help agriculture with no background uh, in agriculture, uh, that becomes an uphill battle for us ag producers. And, and you're exactly right. What in Colorado, uh, the House Committee has, uh, I think, three 
ag producers on it, Holtorf, uh, uh, Mark Catlin, um, and who is the other one I'm missing there? I think there's a, a, another one as well. Uh, when you rely on those three to educate the rest of the committee, that, that becomes a problem. Uh, the chair of that committee is a lawyer that has no agriculture experience. Uh, uh, Representative Chairman Roberts. Uh, although I will tell you that uh, he is one of the chairmen that I have had a very good relationship and when he has questions, he will reach across the aisle and reach over to me in the Senate and say, how does this work, Jerry? Uh, so, so that's good that we still have that, but, but you're right. We have the opportunity or the possibility of that working against us. If you have all of a sudden uh, uh, someone that is anti-agriculture running that committee, then it becomes a much bigger challenge. And I don't want to, we talked a little bit about diversity and I don't want to uh, uh, leave without saying that, you know, we've had some excellent women uh, leaders in, in uh, the industry, the past president of the Livestock Association, uh, I think uh, the new president of the Cattlemen's Association, uh, you know, we've had, uh, there's, there's female board of directors, but when it comes to other diversity with regard to race, uh, ethnicity, um, it's hard to actually find those people in agriculture. And so to get agriculture expertise based on something other than experience may not be the best avenue. And quite honestly, it may not be the best avenue when you work into any other type of board or commission as well to just bring in diversity, just be for the sake of diversity. Uh, you still have to have somebody that has that expertise. Uh, you still have to have somebody that can speak intelligently about our industry. The issue for me is finding those people that are very good at that, that can connect uh, with the millennials, with those people that people like me can't connect with. And my, like, how do, where do we start though? I think we've got to start reaching to some of the millennials, some of either the younger generation, some of the minorities in agriculture and saying, hey, I think you might be good. Come, come join this board meeting and just sit in, see what you think. Do you want us to join? You know, would this be something you're interested in? And it can be like the local cattle association or something like that to get their feet wet. But I think us as agriculture has got to start reaching out and engaging the next generation of leaders so that we can start incorporating diversity and inclusion of people that are in already in agriculture, but that might not know or see the opportunities that face them. You know, we have to understand what the consumer wants. And in order to understand what the consumer wants, you have to have that conversation. Now, whether it's a cup of coffee, with someone that you just met or with someone that sends you an email that listens to your podcast and says, hey, this caught my attention. I want to learn more. You have somebody engaged. You know, at the uh, Governor's Ag Forum here, oh gosh, four or five years ago, 
we did a panel uh, of consumers. Uh, and that panel was actually asked a number of questions on how they felt about certain questions about certain aspects of our industry and what they actually thought. And, and it, it ranged from single mothers to business executives. How do they perceive agriculture? And I think we have to do more of that to figure out what our message is and what they need to know so that they feel comfortable about our products. Whether they know that uh, uh, the, the milk that they get from uh, Catherine's uh, dairy is safe and good and that she takes care of their cows or that the beef they get or the hamburger they get from Baleen is raised in a, in, in a uh, humane manner and that you take care of those animals. That's what they want to hear. That's what they want to see. And so in order to do that, they need to know us. They need to meet us and they need to have conversations with us. And if we can get four or five in a room at a time, for those of people like me in politics, that's how you get elected. You go to kitchen tables, you go to living rooms, and you sit down with a group of people in a neighborhood and say, what, what is bothering you? What, what keeps you up at night? And we need to do the same thing with those families, with those neighborhoods, get them together, maybe even have a little barbecue and say, so what do you worry about in food safety? And find out what that question is. Then we can find the answer. And then we can bring those people to understand how agriculture works. Comes back and that may mean that we may have to adjust some of the ways we do business as well in agriculture. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Hang on just a second. <laughs> you mean we're not perfect either? <laughs> uh, you just asked my kids. Absolutely. <laughs> Dad, I'm the dumbest uh, farm operator in the country, quite honestly. Uh, you know, uh, yes, we make mistakes. We make mistakes every day. Uh, there are times that uh, I wish I would have done things differently. Uh, uh, and, and it doesn't matter if it's just agriculture or in life in general. We learn from those mistakes and we try to become better at it. That's why we're better farmers and ranchers now than we were or our grandparents were 50 years ago. Well, I've, I've said it before and I will say it a million more times before I'm dead, I'm sure, but my dad, um, as we were growing up, always said, do the best that you know how until you can do better and then do better. And I think mistakes are, they're just a part of life. They're the human condition. And what we have to be willing to do is fail forward um, and not, not just give this battle up. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's almost a, a three-pronged kind of a battle because there's producers who want to talk to people like, you know, just a regular old Joe Schmo, Joe Schmo consumer in the grocery store who has concerns but isn't necessarily, a, you know, a, um, an activist. Um, but activists certainly get in the way of us being able to have those conversations and build those relationships and, you know, um, are really, really good at being that squeaky wheel. They have a big stage. They have big megaphones and um, agriculture just by our nature being the humble people that we are and just wanting to get on with 
you know, getting the crops irrigated or the cows milked um, doesn't really lend itself to, to fighting the battle on both fronts. Yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, it, it, and it's something that makes us uncomfortable to do. I mean, we're, uh, the vast majority of us here in agriculture, and I know you find this hard to believe, but I'm probably a little more introvert. I could, uh, I could uh, go off into the hills on, with my horse, uh, lose my phone, and stay away from people for uh, some time. And a lot of us in agriculture love the land and just enjoy being in the land and don't want to be that activist to protect our industry. But if it's not us, who? And who? So here we find ourselves. You're a politician. We're podcasters. A spokesperson. <laughs> spokesperson. I don't recall ever saying that to you, Senator. <laughs> <laughs> we find ourselves here in positions that um, either we're trying to build a voice like we are for a podcast or the inherent voice that comes with, with being um, an elected official. How do we encourage others to join us? Um, you know, we get a lot of comments, Valine and I do, that, oh, you're so brave to put yourselves out there and, and talk about these hard topics and, and talk to the people that you do. Oh my gosh, you talked to a vegan? Yeah, we did, and it was a great conversation. And we saw the very same thing that you just said, if not us, then who? And I mean, I think for both of us, the driving forces, we cannot stand the thought of there not being a legacy and a, a sustainable future for American agriculture. So we threw our hats in the ring. You know, it's simple math. Is there we're such a thing? We're 2% of the population. That means that every one of us has to reach 50 other people to make this work. And that's not going to happen. So we have to do a better job of developing people that are able and have the skills to be able to reach the 50 that I'm involved in and the 50 that my son's involved in that he doesn't want to talk to mm -hmm. and the 50 of his buddies that don't want to talk to. We're already starting with such a limited number that we have to do a better job of developing those people that are willing to reach out and not, and again, not guys like me, people like you that people want to listen to people like others that you have had on the show because for the if you have a void in what's being said that void will be filled with what the activists are saying absolutely they have a lot more people working at this and a lot more money to carry their message than we do and so we just have to be a better job of reaching those 50 people that every single one of us in agriculture have to reach. And I think that comes up a point that we all have to do our part and it might look different. You know, for Catherine and I, it's this podcast or being involved in different things. You know, other people, it's supporting the checkoff and being at the table to talk with the checkoffs. It's questioning the norm saying, hey, what's up? Or you see a mom lost in the grocery store looking at the meat case and she doesn't know whether to buy the chuck roast, the round steak or the hamburger and just saying, Hey, do you have a question? I'm a beef rancher. I'm a mom. I'm how can, how can I help you? And so I think it's, for me, it's 
it might look different than you and it might look different than my dad or my mom or my brother, but I think we all have to find our unique way of, of feeling, filling that void in some way. And it might like for somebody, it might be two or three people. And for somebody else, it might be 200 and it'll balance out, but everybody's got to find a way to do their part in protecting our heritage and our legacy. Uh, you, you're exactly right. And you bring up a very valid strategy. If you're at the grocery store and someone's standing at the meat, maybe they know what they want to do. You can say something simply as, wow, that steak looks good. They can respond. They can choose not to respond, but they can choose to respond. And all of a sudden, you have a dialogue. All of a sudden, you have a conversation. It may be a 30-second one, and maybe they'll ask you a question. Maybe not. But that's the start of a relationship. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I, you know, I'm hearing a lot of challenges and sort of an underdog tone to these to these last few sentences and, and comments that we've had. But the really cool thing about agriculture is we've always been the underdog and we've never been afraid of a challenge. And I think that that is a great place to end this episode. You know, we're, we're agriculture um, and we may be small, but we're pretty mighty. <laughs> and we're willing to fight and work long days to make it so our legacy, our heritage, what our families have fought for continue on. Like we're not, Agriculture is not afraid of hard work. That's one thing that's for sure. Yeah. So well, it's, been a, it's been a pleasure to be on your podcast with you, and I couldn't agree more. Um, uh, the reason we do this is not for the money, because uh, there's not a lot of money in agriculture. The reason we do this is because we love the land. We love producing the food for the entire world, and we love... Uh, the lifestyle of raising our families here with good, honest, hard work. Uh, thank you for what you guys do to help get that message out. Uh, keep up that good work because that is key for us to defend agriculture. So thank you. Thank you for joining us today, Senator. Um, if they're so inclined, where can our listeners find you? You know, I publish my cell phone uh, on my website, uh, electsonenberg.com or you can go to the state legislature website uh, or you can drop an email. I publish my email as well on those uh, on that website. So uh, please reach out to me, drop me a note. Uh, uh, I am always happy to answer as, uh, as much as I can. Uh, I look forward to uh, visiting with folks. Very good. Listeners, that is a wrap for episode 51. Be on the lookout for a big celebration for episode 52 as Millennial Ag hits its first birthday. And um, thank you for listening with us tonight. Until next week, we're Millennial Ag.